So, uh, we're on task today for uh, Bible question and answer, uh, maybe not only Bible question and answer, we kind of broaden it out to um, if there are questions kind of pressing on your heart related to ministry, uh, Christian living, Bible, theology, again, no guarantee I can answer them, I'll do the best I can, and if I don't have an answer, I'll try to find one for you, but pretty broad as far as the range, the scope of topics, other than... I know I say this every time, but other than purposely, intentionally trying to pit faculty against faculty, that we don't, we don't go with that. So uh, if you're not trying to do that, probably any other question would be uh, okay. So with that as intro, who wants to go first? Good. Um, I'm, I'm not rephrase your question. I'm not tracking. I guess the gospels like they have different paraphrases of different perspectives, but the introduction to Peter's denial is very different in Luke and John. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Well, no, and and as you, I'm sure you know by this point in your studies, um, uh, the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptics, from you know soon and optic to see together. Uh, so they are called the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John's is often called the Supplemental Gospel. Uh, fairly certain that John wrote his Gospel last and much later than the other Gospels. Uh, so maybe as late as ninety ninety five. So he had the other Gospels in all likelihood. So he doesn't repeat a lot of the same stuff. And therefore, sometimes it looks, it can look, it just at first glance, as something that's contradictory. Uh, for example, John's the only gospel writer to tell us about the first almost year of Jesus' ministry. If we didn't have John, John 1 through 4, uh, we wouldn't know about that whole first year. Uh, the synoptic gospels pick up the ministry of Jesus about a year into it, which really we've, we've, come, we've grown so used to it that we don't think it's strange. But if you, if you were reading the Gospel of Matthew, this is my opinion now, for the very first time, and you have Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these fishermen... Um, Peter and Andrew, James and John, he says, follow me. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. That should seem strange to us. I mean, why would you leave your business, your vocation, and follow this guy? Who, who is this guy? Well, that's because that happens really early in Matthew. But we have John that lets us know, well, they knew Jesus for about a year at this point, And that call was not the first call on their lives. That was a call basically uh, to full-time training, etc. So, all that to say, whenever you encounter a situation like the one you're describing in Luke and John, read it with the awareness that uh, John already had Luke's gospel in all likelihood. And so he knew what Luke said. And so he's going to give more or something different, not trying to be contradictory, but to fill in what uh, would not otherwise be known. So um, in Luke, I believe it is where you say that uh, Jesus warns him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired, he's asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail, uh, and when you are converted or turned back around, strengthen your brethren. So uh, in Luke's gospel, he was warning him about what would happen, 
Uh, and John, what part did you quote from John? Let me look at that. Uh, Sure, sure. No, I think you clearly can. can. And now, now you're, you're, it's the same question that you were, you were asking, but um, you're talking about now how do you harmonize the Gospels? And uh, it's, I will say this, it is way more complicated than it may first appear. There are some great works out on harmony of the Gospels, um, and I think anybody who attempts to harmonize the Gospels will at least ought to acknowledge with humility that it's, it isn't always easy. It's not, it's not an easy task. I think you can have it, and I think you can give some very plausible solutions, but I think you should always do so with humility saying, uh, frankly, none of the Gospel writers are all that uh, interested in chronology as much as we are. Luke may be more than any of the others, but they are far more interested in themes, thematic presentation of Jesus' life, uh, not so much chronology. The perfect illustration, you don't have to read very far in Matthew and Luke to come to chapter 4 to find out that they don't put the temptations of Jesus in the same order. So which order was it? Well, scholars debate that. Was it Matthew's order or was it Luke's order? They're not nearly as concerned about chronology. Um, A gospel presentation, by the way, the type of writing, that the, the genre of the Gospels uh, was not invented by the Gospel writers. It was a common way to present the biography of someone's life. So therefore, the first century readers would not have been surprised and said, oh, he's not putting this in the right order. He's, you know, this is inaccurate. This is, the, this is our Western mind, the way we would think. You know, this is inaccurate because it's not in order. The first century reader, would have ne- that would have never even entered his mind. So you have, for example, in Matthew... You have uh, the, the Sermon on the Mountain 5, 6, and 7, and it ends with Matthew's editorial comment that they are amazed at this teaching because he taught with authority. And then you roll right into chapter 8. In chapters 8 and 9, you have like, I forget the exact number, I think 10 miracles of Jesus that are recorded one after the other. It's absolutely certain that those did not happen one after the other. And maybe it didn't even happen in that order. But Matthew pulls together those miracles to show Jesus not only taught with authority, Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, he acted with authority. So, again, all that to say, uh, the, the question you ask about, can they be harmonized? Yes. Can we harmonize them with absolute certainty that this was what he said first and then he said that? I'm not sure we can. Now, in some cases, we probably can if we're giving something very definitive on time or chronology. But so often, the gospel writers, just they're not that concerned about chronology. So we have to almost guess did he make this statement first? Or how far, even in relation to your question, how big of a gap between those? Could he have said one early in the evening of the, the upper room discourse, you know, when they were having Passover, and maybe two hours later made the other comment? We, we're not given that. We don't know. We, you know, we're just told about snippets of the conversation. But uh, So I think that you can harmonize that. Does the issue of the harmonizing of the Gospels create some problems? Absolutely it does. And so... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good uh, venture, a good endeavor, and there are some good works. But um, you, you know, I, I, at least I would say, if I ever attempted to do it, I, I, you just have to approach it with humility, saying we're not given all the details. We, we do our best to try to picture them, fit them together, but, but don't be dogmatic. Yeah. Yes, Andrew. 
Yeah, uh, that is, um, that's a really good question uh, because the commandment to love goes all the way back to Leviticus. So my take, it may not be right, but my take is that the newness of the commandment is not so much that the commandment is new, but the nature of it is new, or the example of it, or the angle, whatever term you want to use. In other words, we have in 1 John, we have it's new in the sense that it's new in its quality because we see it in Jesus' life. We see how he talked about it. Uh, so I don't think it's uh, new in time as much as new in if quality is the right word or, or something like that. So it's, it's clearly not a brand new thought in that sense. But it is new in its uh, nature just because of the way Jesus fleshed it out. So that's the way I've take, always taken that. Yeah. Good. Other, other questions? Another question. Yeah. Before certain men came from James. That is in early Galatians. Uh, What he's referring to is that's just a way of saying before these men came from the Jerusalem church. The James in view there is almost certainly James, the half-brother of Jesus, who we find out that in the Gospels he didn't believe in his own brother during Jesus' earthly ministry. John 7 makes that clear. John 7, 5, I think even his own brothers didn't believe in him, James being one of them. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's also right around verse 7, that, that James was converted when Jesus' post-resurrection ministry uh, appeared to him, and he, he believed. And in time, eventually, James became one of the leaders, elders, pastors of the Jerusalem church, and uh, evidently became one of the prominent leaders because he's mentioned often as uh, as one of the key leaders. And in that case, there's another example. So it's just Paul's simple... If you remember the context of Galatians, he's, he's talking about this whole issue of Jew and Gentile and should you eat with a, as a Jew with a Gentile. And you remember he says Peter was even carried away because he used to, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles because he knew there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There was nothing defiling about that. But when certain men came from James, and you just want to read that, when certain really Jewish people came from Jerusalem, all of a sudden, Peter started getting nervous about, like, man, they're not going to like this, so I'll pull away, which is what prompted Paul. He says there in Galatians 2, I, I had to confront him face to face. I had to say, Peter, you're, you're compromising the gospel. The gospel in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. These distinctions don't matter. Uh, but you're, you're sending a message that they do matter. And you're giving in to, we have a popular phrase today, and it's, it's a valid one, but we use it a lot, fear of man. It's a classic case of fear of man. I mean, Peter ate with Gentiles until these Jewish believers, and I assume they were believers from the Jerusalem church, until they showed up, and then he changed his, his activity, and that was distressing to Paul, and, and understandably so. So anyway, in answer to your question, certain men from James, just certain Christians, maybe even Christian leaders from the Jerusalem church, which brings up another thing, just to encourage you to, to grasp this in your thinking. I, I do believe it's very easy for us to miss... Um, when we read the book of Acts, rightly so, we read it about the spread of the gospel to the world, and it certainly is that. But it's really important and really helpful if you read the early chapters of the book of Acts and, and force yourself to realize just how Jewish it was. I mean, how Jewish the church was. It was, it was so Jewish that even on Paul's third missionary journey, when he was going around to the Gentile churches, you remember that one of his 
tasks was to collect an offering from the Gentile churches. And the reason he was doing this was twofold. One, there was a great need in Jerusalem, the, the mother church, if you will, and he wanted to meet the need. There was a famine, etc. But he had always bigger purposes than that. He wanted this gift from the Gentile churches to be a statement to the Jewish church of their oneness and trying to you know, overcome some of these barriers. But not only did Paul collect money from these Gentile churches on his third missionary journey, he actually collected people. He collected Gentile converts to take them back to Jerusalem. Now, now hear this. This is bizarre. He did it because he was convinced that the Jewish believers would not be convinced that you can be a Gentile Christian unless he showed them some. So he's bringing them back for like, I don't know if you guys did this, but when I was in school, we had show and tell. So this was show and tell. Bring the Gentile converts back and show them. Make them come. And of course, if you know the whole story, that's what got Paul in trouble because he brought these Gentiles back and one, then he gets back to Jerusalem and the Jewish church says, Paul, you're really in trouble. There's a lot of misinformation being spread about you. People saying you're anti-Jewish. We've got a solution to propose. Do this. You know, we've got some men going to do this vow, shave their heads, do all this stuff, go to the temple with them, and it'll convince them you're not anti-Jewish. Paul does it as he's coming out. Somebody says, that's the guy we saw with the Gentiles. He brought Gentiles into the temple, which he didn't do, by the way. He didn't take them beyond where they should have gone, but that was the accusation which started the riot. Listen, it doesn't take much to start a riot on the Temple Mount, still to this day. This doesn't take much. And so it started a riot, and that led to Paul's arrest, which lasted like four to five years, which is why he says, if you read him closely, like in Philippians and Colossians, the prison epistles, he talks about being uh, a prisoner for you or on your account. What is he talking about? He means, because of my ministry to you Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he says, it's my ministry to you as Gentiles that got me in trouble. And he doesn't say it in a complaining way. In fact, he says, I'll take it. I'll gladly take it. But it was Paul's ministry to the Gentiles that got him in trouble. And so as you read Acts, uh, it's very important that you not read it through Gentile lens like, like the church here is, like our churches today, because it took a long time before you got churches more like ours today. The church in the early days was very very Jewish, extremely Jewish. So that's the answer to your question. That's what he's referring to there. Great. Other question? Um, I was curious about when you were talking about the abomination of desolation mm-hmm. um, in Mark 13. And I'm curious of what that is. But then also in uh, verse 17 and 18, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bet. Sure. Yeah, and you don't need to. Let me co- let me comfort you. Okay. Let me comfort you. You don't ever need to pray that prayer. I don't believe, and I'll tell you why. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew's is more elongated. But, in, 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 but they say the same thing. Uh, it's Matthew twenty four fifteen where you have the parallel to Mark thirteen fourteen. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the, uh, where it ought not, or standing in the holy place, Matthew's account. Then this fascinating statement. 
I just finished, some of you know, I just finished writing a book on the Olivet Discourse and just turned it in like 10 days ago. It'll be published pretty soon here. And it's out of Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, as I was studying to write that book, I just found hardly anybody, if anyone, who even dealt with this phrase, it's in Matthew and Mark, let the reader understand. That is so significant. That is extremely significant. Because what that is telling you is that when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, though he was answering their question and speaking to them, what he had to say did not really primarily apply to them. It wasn't the hearer that needed to understand. It's the reader. It's someone who would read it later. So uh, here, uh, Matthew has the same comment, which leads us to believe, since it's in both Matthew and Mark, that this was not an editorial comment by Matthew or an editorial comment by Mark, though that's possible. But in all likelihood, this was a statement by Jesus, a parenthetical statement. And so what that lets us know is that Jesus gave all this information for future readers, not for the people primarily hearing it. Let the reader understand. That's uh, Matthew 24, 15. Let him who reads understand. You better understand this if you're reading it. And so he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that is obviously then goes back to Daniel. It's events spoken of by Daniel. Where is it spoken of? It's spoken of actually more than once in Daniel. But the primary passage is Daniel 9.27, where Daniel is given this vision, this chronology of 70 periods of seven, uh, after which Israel will no longer be in rebellion. Uh, Israel will be redeemed. They will finally, they will be repentant, etc. at the end of this 70 periods of seven. Well, the angel Gabriel gives this to Daniel, and he breaks it down into some segments Uh, 69 periods of seven. And then he says, after the 69 periods of seven, there are going to be some significant events. The Messiah will be cut off. That's crucifixion. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then he says, he lets us know what begins the last period of seven. Uh, He, that is this coming prince, this coming world ruler, when he signs a covenant for uh, for a period of seven, seven years, that starts the clock on the last seven. But he says, Daniel 9.27, right in the middle of the verse, but in the middle of that, and by the way, most of our translations say week. Uh, It is a week, but it's not a week of days. It's a week of years, and we know that because it's literally in Hebrews 77. It doesn't say week. But we know that because in the very next chapter, when Daniel wants to specify a week of days, he says week of days. So he's not talking about a week of days in chapter 9 because when he wants to talk about a week of days, he does so in chapter 10 by making it clear it's a week of days. These are weeks of years. So in, in the very middle of that, Daniel 9.27 says that this coming prince, world ruler, whatever, however you want to refer to him, most Christians refer to him as the Antichrist, will break the covenant and commit the abomination of desolation. All right? So that's from Daniel. Jesus quotes Daniel or refers to Daniel, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place or standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Now, who is the you? This is so key for the Olivet Discourse because most Christians read the Olivet Discourse as, a, as them, like Jesus is talking to them. Uh, I don't think that's an accurate way to take the Olivet Discourse because look at the very next verse. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So who is the you that are going to see this? It is the you, the you who are in Judea, you who are in Israel, you, you Jewish people. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He doesn't say let those who are in Missouri flee to the mountains. It's Judea. 
And then let him who is on the housetop not go down, and let him who is in the field not go back to take his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because if when you see this, Jesus says it's so important you get out of Judea, you get out of Israel, it's so important that you don't even take time to go get your clothes. If it's that important to get out that quickly, what if you're pregnant? You can't move very quickly. Or what if you're nursing a baby? And pray that your flight may not be in winter. Well, why? Obvious reasons. You can't, you can't escape as quickly in winter as you can in, in nice weather. In winter in Israel, you don't have much snow. Every now and then they have snow, but it's just the rainy season. Uh, so you, you can't get out near as quickly. And then, uh, for in those days, there will be tribulations such as not been, etc., etc. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew's account, he says that, and I'm trying to see if he does in Mark's. I didn't. Where did you mention the Sabbath? Does he, does he mention that in Mark's account, or are you just reading from Matthew's? Okay, in Matthew's account, he says, Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now again, this is so critical in properly interpreting the Olivet Discourse. Obviously, like you said, you've never prayed that, and you don't need to, because if this applied to you, you wouldn't care a flip that it was Saturday. In fact, you might prefer that it was Saturday, right? Why would it matter to you if it's Saturday that the abomination of desolation happens? It doesn't matter to you. As a Gentile, as a Christian, it's irrelevant to you. But in Matthew's account, Jesus clearly said, pray that your flight's not in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because on the Sabbath, it's hard to get out of Israel. I've taken a lot of groups to Israel, and we always try to work around the Sabbath. Because even getting flights in and out of Israel on the Sabbath is tough. The buses shut down. I mean, Larissa lived there. She can tell you, you can't get around on the Sabbath very easily. Uh, a lot of taxis don't like to run. And if they do run and they go through a conservative Jewish neighborhood, they get pelted with stones. Uh, so, you, you, you know, you don't, if you're Jewish, you don't want this event to happen on the Sabbath. Because you're stuck. If you're trying to get out of Judea, you're trying to get out of Jerusalem. Uh, Judea would include uh, some of the larger cities of, of Israel, you know, of Beersheba. If you're trying to get out of there and it's the Sabbath, you're really in trouble. So all that to say this, as I've studied the, the Olivet Discourse now over and over and over again to write this book, I am convinced more than ever it's way more Jewish again than most people read. A lot of Christians try to find, not in this account, but in Matthew's account, they try to find... Uh, they try to find the, the, the rapture in there. And they, they will go to the passage where, well, two men will be, you know, two women grinding and one taken, the other left. Listen, you don't want to be taken. Because the taken, Jesus could not be any clearer when he says it's going to be like in the days of Noah when the, the floods came and took them away in judgment. And his very next statement is, and two will be at the mill, one, grind, you know, one taken, the other left. You don't want to be taken because those who are taken are taken in judgment. So, again, all that to say that the reason why you wrestle with this in, in the Olivet Discourse is probably you're reading it as a Gentile, like what Jesus is talking to me here. I don't think he is talking to you. You don't live in Judea. The Sabbath is irrelevant to you. Uh, I, it's, this is a message for the Jewish people, and I personally believe it's a message for the Jewish people who will be living when the abomination of desolation takes place, and they will read Matthew and Mark. And then that statement, let the reader understand, is it will be relevant to them. So that's my take on the Olivet Discourse. And if you remind me, because you asked the question when it comes out, I'll give you a free copy of my book, all right? <laughs> Good. Other, other questions?
Yes, sir. Kai. Sure, sure, sure. I won't spoil it. He'll have a lot more to say about it and a lot better, but I'll just say this. You know, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, you have no subordination in essence. You know that. I mean, this is preaching the choir. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are equal in essence, but there is a logical or relational subordination. That's why we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Son. And so... Um, so that is, I think, just I would take that as a reference to the relational, logical subordination within the triune Godhead, not in any way as a statement of essence. So that's simply how I'd answer. It's just not indicating any distinction in essence or inferiority, but, but um, it's, it's not unlike, and of course that's why the Scripture uses the example, it's not unlike the relationship between uh, husband and wife. Scripture couldn't be any clearer. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. You're completely equal in Christ. Equal standing before God, equality between male and female, but there are different roles. And so a wife submits to her husband. Why? Because the husband is superior? Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is, there are many marriages where the wife is maybe more intelligent, more superior, whatever, but it has nothing to do with essence, superiority. It has to do with function. Uh, and so it's not saying that a woman is inferior to a man any more than Jesus is inferior to God the Father. And if you go back and look at the creation account, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him, for the man. So if you're wanting to wrestle through superiority, inferiority, who is it that needs the help? Right? It's the guy who needs the help. God creates a helper for the guy. So uh, you can't build any doctrines of inherent superiority or inferiority to those. Those are logical relational subordination. All right, I think we're at 10 of, so we probably need, unless there's one pressing question quickly before we pray. We're good? All right, I think we'll pray and head to lunch, right? Is that right? Is that not? Okay, all right. Father, thank you so much for uh, time to pull apart from our day, and thank you for uh, Evan and the ministry team the worship team leading us in some great songs of adoration and then also for a chance just to wrestle through some of these issues in your word. Thank you for these students, for the opportunity they have to be here at Montana Bible College and to take this just this time out of their lives uh, to invest it in such a key way by studying Scripture and, and, and uh, developing, enhancing, strengthening their relationship with you. And so wherever they go in life, whatever their vocation or avocation or whatever you lead them to do. This will be such an invaluable uh, investment of time. So thank you that they have the opportunity to be here, and I pray for their encouragement. I know for some it's probably a stretch to be here. Maybe it's a stretch financially or it's a, it's a stretch on them just with maybe things going on back home, and it's, it's not easy to be here. pray you encourage them, uh, strengthen them, and uh, just uh, help them to continue to see just how worthwhile this time is, though it may be difficult. So use this, uh, this phase of their lives as they are around here, interacting with one another, with uh, teachers, um, and just in various, just various relationships that they have, uh, that you would use all of this to conform all of us more to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.